Hello and welcome to I Assure You We're Podcasting, the show on Talk Film Society, where we take a look at the work of Kevin Smith. I'm Mike, and today we're going to be taking a look at Kevin Smith's eighth movie, Zack and Mary Make a Porno. And to help me with that is Thomas from Double Edge Double Bill. I got that right, right? Yes, you got it right. You get a gold right. star for that one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so th- how, how's it going, Thomas? Uh, it's going good, sir. Going very good, sir. Well, well thanks for, for joining me. So I, I, I really like the idea behind your show, the idea of forcing people to watch things that they don't necessarily want to watch, I guess. Well, I mean, it's, it's half of the show. What I like about the show is that it's like, because it's not just a bad movie podcast, and that's just a good movie podcast. It's a bit of yeah. both. And sometimes, you know, we like the bad movie more than the good movie, or vice versa. It, it, it's, it's an interesting kind of random double feature with a vague theming tied mm-hmm. together. Yeah. I was listening to your most recent episode where you talk about Wanted, and mm-hmm. uh, that movie's terrible, but it holds a, a special place in my heart because they shot it in Chicago, which is where I'm located. And that first scene, and I could be getting this wrong because the last time I saw it was the night before it came out, but that, that first scene where they're in like a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And then, like, it turns into, like, a fight, and then it turns into, like, a car chase. Am I getting this right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that describes many <laughs> moments in that movie. Again. Okay. <laughs> well, the, the grocery store, like, I'm sitting there watching this movie, and I'm like, and I think they name it in the movie, like, the egg store or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the egg store, like, I... That that's that grocery store that, you know, is right across the parking lot from my job that I've never been in. And like as it's playing, like I'm like, is this the grocery store? And then they leave and they're in the parking lot. And I'm like, holy shit, that actually is that's my egg store. Because this the, the fun 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 fact, uh in in Wayne's world, you know, when they're doing the whole Bohemian Rhapsody thing and yeah. they drive by the car spire thing mm-hmm. with all the cars on it. So that that car spire was inside the parking lot for the egg store. And there's one really quick shot in there during the car chase where you can see the spire in the background. It's since been removed and replaced with a Walgreens, which is terrible. But um, I think the egg store is gone too. Regardless... That's all I remember about Wanted. Um, I mean, that's uh, that's the most important cinematic universe to start in 2008, clearly. I think Especially so, right? that summer. So, that's, the, that's the only one of note. The Wanted Wayne's World cinematic universe. Not Marvel. Not, uh... <laughs> yeah, well, I guess Dark Knight didn't start that summer, right? It, it already existed, right? Even though most people are like, oh, Dark Knight, the first one of those, right? There wasn't a Batman Begins. Batman never began. Oh, the Mamma Mia cinematic universe started that summer, too. Oh, that's a good point. That is the most important cinematic universe. Fair point. Yeah. 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 Anyway, enough <laughs> about Wanted. You know, as, as much as as much as much uh, we, we love talking about it. Well, it fits um, given 2008 is appropriate for this particular episode. That's true. That's true. Because 2008 also saw Zack and Mary make a porno. So, in terms of Kevin Smith on the whole... What are your, th- your what are your feelings? 
there's a lot of complicated feelings. Um, okay. All right. th- there was a point where Kevin Smith was sort of like the identity thing I really liked. It was like, I remember the first time I saw any Kevin Smith movie was Dogma, but specifically on Comedy Central. So very heavily edited to the point where the Golagothan is completely edited out of that movie. And like the broadcast cable version, <laughs> and it makes okay. sense. You can completely lift it out. Honestly, it doesn't. Yeah, need to be it could there. be. It just sounds like a good edit, to be honest. You yeah, know what I, mean? I, I don't disagree. But um, <laughs> but that movie I was fascinated by, and then I believe they were also running Jane Silent Bob Strike Back around that time. And I'm young. I am like in middle school. So Kevin Smith becomes kind of like the oh my god, this is like the dirty thing. But this feels like it's the biggest advance from like before that. I was like a Simpsons kid. And they became like a Kevin Smith, like tween to teen, like throughout high school. Loved Kevin Smith at too young an age, far too young. Yeah, I mean that's you know I think probably a lot of people's stories, right? True, I could I could see that being the case because it feels like you know Kevin Smith, like to me, feels like the uncle who when you were a kid you loved seeing at family reunions. You just loved to me like oh he's like a bit more immature, but he's like the cool one. Always loved hanging out with him. And then the older you get, you kind of advance a bit beyond him to me, but then he kind of stays the same. Mm-hmm. So he, you're kind of at that like bit of a distance with him where you still have those fond memories, but at the same time, it's like, I can't just, it can't just be dick and fart jokes for me anymore, man. <laughs> I can't, it can't just be that. I, I, I think that's kind of the frustration. And this is like a movie that comes out around the time I'm at my peak enjoyment, particularly because Smodcast was huge for me that was like the first yes. podcast i ever listened to and it was kind of like after loving the audio commentaries on the dvds so much i was really just fascinated with like oh my god he can have those like outside of a dvd and i can listen to them yeah. on the go crazy no it's true i mean smodcast was the fr- i mean i would not be sitting here podcasting if it weren't for smodcast i mm-hmm. know that's incredibly cliche and i apologize <sighs> to the world for that but it's true. And, you know, I mean, even like, uh, you know, well, associating with like Talk Film Society and stuff like that, that came from, I mean, when, when Tell Em Steve Dave started, I mean, that was like, ooh, a spinoff. That's, that's a bizarre concept. But then when they were like, we're going to have a different podcast every day of the week, I was like, this is amazing. I love this conceptually. I think some of them are bad, and yet I'm going to listen to every single one because I love the idea behind it, you know? I don't do that anymore. I don't listen to all of them anymore. I'm pretty much just Fat Man Beyond, and that's it. But um, I love the idea behind the Smodcast Network. It's amazing. No, for sure. I mean, he created a little mini empire of his own with that. Like, VSQ had always been very sort of, like, fan-focused, but that just, like, kicked off into, like, a completely new medium that was, like, yeah. very burgeoning. Like, in, the Smodcast starts in, like, 2007, right? Like, that's it very early right for podcasting. Yeah, because the, the, the uh, Zach and Mary episode is, like, number 68, So and that was in December of 2008. So, yeah, 2007 would make sense. Yeah, so it was just, it was it felt so new and different 
And it's like you say, it's cliche, but at the same time, without that, I wouldn't have listened to the, all the other podcasts. Like, pretty much all the other podcasts I listened to after that point were just ones Smith had guested on, like uh, Filmcast, which at the time was a slash Filmcast, was like the yeah. big one that sort of got me into podcasting after that and started that whole journey to eventually I started recording stuff. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it was, and especially I followed the making ofs of both like Clerks 2 with like the back to the well video things, and then Zach and Miri also had this with the money shots, I believe they were called uh-huh. so like that comes with online presence like really was like how i was so deeply like in that at that time yeah yeah okay so uh like at what point did you like reach an age where you could go to a, a kevin smith movie in the theater well i mean i would drag certain people to it like i dragged my father to see clerks too which was a very yeah. awkward experience, um, to say the least. And with Zach and Miri, it was more a case of, like, I had a friend's older brother who was able to mm-hmm. get something there. But in terms of, like, by my, I mean, on my own, it was probably, it would have technically been, like, a red state, even though I couldn't see red state at all. It was, like, not playing, really. The, the tour didn't come around my neck of the woods. But I think it was weird. By the time I was able to just see one on my own was probably Tusk, and that's around the point I start dipping off of, like, the Kevin Smith train. Okay, but you but you saw Clerks. I mean, so Clerks Two is the first one that you did see in the theater. Yes. Or did you did you make it to Jersey Girl? No, Jersey Girl was a bit before my Kevin Smith time. I was aware of okay. that. It's just like it's a movie that he did, I guess, but I didn't see yeah. it in the theater. No. Okay. All right. So uh, then, skipping ahead to to Zach and Mary, um, you said that you went with like a a friend's older brother or something. Well, my friend and his older brother, like he was able to get us in, basically. Yeah. Okay. So so uh did you go like opening weekend or like was this something where you had to see it like opening night or, or I mean not opening go? night because that's kind of part of the the infamous well, part of this movie. Yes. <laughs> Is yes. it's opening night was not a night I was free to go to the movie but on Saturday that November 1st I went for sure but not opening day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, for me I saw it um it, they they played it at the Chicago Film Festival and if I'm not mistaken it was like kind of a late addition to the program and it was one of those things where like the Chicago Film Festival is weird I'm not a huge fan of it just because um, I, I don't know I'm, I'm, I, I, as far as like festival sort of genres are concerned theirs doesn't really it is not really in my wheelhouse but they've got like all of these like small indie um international movies that sort of make up the bulk of the the festival but then sprinkled throughout are these like pretty like high-end sort of like oscar bait titles that they will throw in and say like well it's not competing and we're gonna charge you know twice as much but you know we got to pay the bills right you know this is the only way that you can see the small stuff and i was like kind of like i'm like is zach and mary gonna qualify like because kevin smith i i mean clerks played as one of those you know indie titles at you know chicago back in 93 i guess um so you know he was i mean he's always been a part of the festival that sort of thing and i'm like well zach and miri make the cut and it did you know as one of these like special things and then you know the big question was like well is he going to be there because they they always announce you know they always get like directors and actors to come Mm -hmm. in and they always announce it because obviously that's a huge um part of the draw and he was not announced 
at all. And we went, my friend and I went to see it. And uh, then after the movie, he just shows up. He just walks out and it's like, hey, you know, almost like everyone knew he was going to be there. But, you know, like he did. It's not like, oh, my God, it's Kevin Smith. It's just like, oh, did I miss the announcement? Like that sort of thing, you know? It's like Schrodinger's director. Like you weren't quite sure until he showed up. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then when he showed up, I'm like, that just makes sense. And you know, it was really weird. At the time, it was. I didn't think anything of it. A month later, I was like, wow, that I, what I saw was something very, very unique but we'll get into that in a minute let's just put a pin in that we'll come back to that later on so so what did you think about zach and miri when you saw it back in 2008 i think at the time i remember being kind of like a bit deflated by i think mainly because like the people who i saw it with like my friend and his older brother were just like oh whatever it's fine it was okay. It's not as funny as Knocked Up or 40-Year-Old Virgin, which is a big key thing. It's like the weird sort of like Apatow element of this, I think, kind of both like helped this movie get made and kind of hurt its reception at the time, um, which is a shame. But I kind of like went along with that. You know, like, yeah, I guess it was all right. You know, it's good, but it's not up to the upper echelon of uh, Kevin Smith stuff. So I remember just kind of like watching it then and kind of forgetting about it for a while. It just kind of felt like the first Kevin Smith movie I sort of forgot about at that particular time. Okay, that's interesting. And I guess we didn't really get into the history, but, you know, this is a movie, you know, obviously made right after Clerks 2, where I feel like Kevin Smith kind of got his groove back in a sense, you know, after after Jersey Girl being, you know, not successful financially or critically and him returning to his roots and, and, and everything like that. I feel like clerks Two, in a sense was a reset and allowed him to do something like Zach and Mary. And it really felt like he was swinging for the fences from a commercial standpoint. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that you're getting Seth Rogen, who's like the biggest comedy star in the world and who, I mean, when I saw, you know, Judd Apatow's early work, like Knocked Up and stuff like that, I was like, this is what Kevin Smith's doing. Why are people responding to this with like $100 million grosses, but not Kevin Smith? Like, I don't see the difference. And you hear interviews with, you know, Rogan or Apatow or whatever, and they always cite Kevin Smith as a, as a huge influence. And it's like, what why don't why don't people recognize smith for you know the genius that he is or whatever right and and you know prior to this too you know like he was talking about like when 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 he was teasing the movie which seemed like it took forever um it, you know he was always saying like oh it's a romantic comedy with rosario dawson that's how he built it for months and months mm-hmm. and months and then, you know, they, the Seth Rogen thing was never announced because it was like one of those things where he was waiting for his schedule to free up and all that stuff. And I think he just didn't want to jinx it. Right. Right. And apparently and, this was like right. Like he was initially going to shoot it like the winter of 2007. But he was like, guys, I just get, got done with Knocked Up and Super Bad. I'm dying. I need like a couple months right. to chill out. 
Exactly, yeah. And and because of that, Rosario Dawson's schedule conflicted with Eagle Eye, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken. Right, the film we all and, love, Eagle Eye. Everyone's favorite. <laughs> yes, yes. I saw it. I, I remember watching it. Um, the only thing that I remember about it is the owner of the movie theater that I worked at was taking... Um, pictures with the local newspaper that morning and like i was there like by myself like before the theater opened watching it on this screen and the uh photographer was like you know what would be cool if you stood up on the stage right in front of the screen and then we get the movie projected on you and the owner was like i'll do that so i'm sitting there watching eagle eye and there's like some guy just standing in the middle of the <laughs> but honestly only part of that movie i remember so you know what <laughs> um but yeah yeah no rosario dawson so elizabeth banks was brought in instead and i think i think it's a very good choice yeah but like to get back to the thing you were talking about sort of the apatowisms i think it's really interesting where this sort of period of smith is so much more of him i think trying to be a bit more creeping into the mainstream like it kind of starts with jersey girl obviously that's trying to appeal to like more of a mainstream pg-13 crowd and even clerks too as much as it feels definitely like more of his like getting back to his roots it looks and is at least sold a bit more at that time like it's supposed to be like a bigger like summer hit despite being a little indie movie i would argue like even the like the sort of um uh, like the the poster campaigns and stuff like that, they're trying to sell it as a bit bigger of a movie than mm-hmm. like the usual view askew thing. And then Zack and Miri make a porno definitely feels like okay, I've um I, I want to do the Judd Apatow thing. I've been acting weirdly in a couple movies like Catch and Release or the fourth Die Hard movie. <laughs> like yeah, at this yeah. point, it feels like and he's about to do Cop Out right after this. It feels like it's him trying to be like I can make big studio comedies. I can be that guy. I want to evolve into this next stage of my career. Which I think it's just an unfortunate factor of he's trying to do that at like the crucial point where we start to get the death of like the mainstream theatrical comedy. Like I, 2008 is around the beginning of the end, I would argue for that. That could be, but it still definitely wasn't dead. But yes, no, I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. He's always had like bad timing in that regard. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know, I mean, you brought up you you brought up his his acting career or whatever, and Catch and Release, and and Die Hard Four, and that is kind of like an interesting footnote because like Catch and Release always. I mean, did you see Catch and Release? Did you see it? I, I saw it on DVD because I'm like Kevin Smithson, I have to see it, and that's yeah the one and only time I bothered with it. That's I mean, yeah, that's how I, I felt when it came out. Like, wow, like this could be a turn, and he was like playing like the. I mean, for lack of a better term, he was like the Jack Black in high fidelity uh, sort of yes. role, you know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which which I'm totally down with, you know, and I just love the fact that like that exists. Die Hard felt almost more like a cameo to me, you know, just like like one of those things where it's like, you want to be in the new Die Hard movie? Yes, I do. You know, well, okay, well, I mean, it, it also feels kind of like it's trying to be like the sort of scene serial stealer part kind of thing like he's supposed to be the argyle of that particular movie which like he comes in he's like oh i'm having like a big scene i'm backing off justin long and bruce willis isn't it fun i guess so yeah it is kind of the argyle part although i think they were you know argyle you know didn't have like the name actor thing going for it right Right, but they're trying to manufacture that with someone vaguely of note, even though most like people going to see Live Free or Die Hard do not know who Kevin Smith Probably is. Probably don't know. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I I enjoyed Catch and Release. I, I think 
Live Free or Die Hard is actually a very good movie. I know that there are a lot of people who disagree with that. That's okay. I mean, the fifth um, Die Hard makes that one look infinitely better. Well, yeah, the fifth one is is horrendously bad. Yeah, but I'd put, I put. I think I'd put Live Free or Die Hard at number two on the franchise. If I'm going to be honest, and you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who would disagree. <laughs> You're giving me a, a, a dirty um, look no, right I mean, now. And... I'll say this much. Like, it's not that far off from, say, Die Hard 2, which I feel is very overrated anyway. I think they both have similar problems. But once again, both of them miles ahead of 5. Like, 5 is like in a very distant fifth. There, there was this... <laughs> It was actually inspired by Marcelo, but when the fifth one came out, uh, there was a theater in the city which was doing a marathon where, like, starting at, like, 9 o'clock in the morning, they were showing all five leading up to the premiere of the fifth one. And somehow I talked my co-host Max into going. I'm like, come on, it's Die Hard. He's like, yeah. And then it's Die Hard 2, 3, 4, and 5. And I'm like, yeah, but it's Die Hard. And he's like, I'll go, but the only reason why I'll go is because uh, I I want to... uh, show support for the Die Hard for the National Film Registry campaign that Marcelo started. And I'm like, that's fair enough. You know, so we went and it was like, I've been to a a billion of these marathons, but it had the weirdest vibe because it really was like, you're watching the best movie first. And then it's just this like slow decline into, you know, it's so, it was so bizarre. I would make I mean, the argument for a slight uptick with With a Vengeance. I would stand pretty hard for With a Vengeance. I think With a Vengeance is pretty fun. <laughs> Mo- most people would. I, I, I enjoy it With a Vengeance, but I mean, to me, I guess it, it would be like one, four, two, three, and five. I think that's my ranking. Um, I'd say one, three, four, two, bup, 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 five. <laughs> Okay, I put loaded weapon one in between. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the the detective, the um, the Frank Sinatra movie, which is based on the right. Yes, same exactly. Book That's also there. Yes, actually, that one's pretty good to be honest. But you know, <laughs> um, but still, yes, yes. No, I I, I agree about that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, Kevin Smith I, I, trying to do mainstream stuff. You know, I think like. I mean, this was also, like, right after the Reaper pilot and everything. Yes. Like, he's throwing a bunch of stuff, you know, at the wall and seeing what sticks. And Zack and Miri, though, really did seem like a slam dunk. I mean, Kevin Smith with Seth Rogen. And then you put Elizabeth Banks in there, which, you know, is part of that whole Apatow family and everything. Uh, Same with Craig Robinson also. Yep. Yep. Shortly after, like, Pineapple Express, where they both really pop quite well. Yep. It seemed like a like a sure thing. I was excited. I was ready, you know. And and when I saw it at that at that uh, film festival, I mean, it was sold out and people loved it, you know. And then it came out on uh, October thirty first, two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. uh, and that was problematic. So. <laughs> It really is weird. I was looking at it. I, 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 I so looking at the box office and okay. I at the time I did not have this job, but n- my current job, my my what what I, I I'm a film programmer. My whole thing mm-hmm. is looking at the schedule and picking movies to play in movie theaters, and 
it is a very well-known fact that the weekend that Halloween falls on, it doesn't even have to fall on that weekend. It's just the last weekend in October is one of the absolute worst weekends of the year for movie theaters. It doesn't matter what's coming out. It's going to bomb. That's why all the Halloween movies come out a couple weeks before Halloween. Mm -hmm. Because by the time you get to Halloween, no one's going to be seeing a movie because they're all going to go to a Halloween party. Right. So who thought releasing this movie on Halloween would be a good idea? Yeah, it feels so weird because, like, Smith has a history with, like, theatrical releases in October in general. But it's usually, like, mid-October. Like, I think that's when, like, Clerks and even Mallrats and the other ones, like, came out around, like, mid-October. It's sort of, like, his sweet spot. And then, I don't know what it is. Is it because it's colder that we had to put it closer to November but not in November? I don't, like, the is it because of the Dawn of the Dead connections we had to put it out <laughs> around October <laughs> I mean, I, I get, I get like the October release day. That's fine. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people, Tarantino, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, I mean, October it is a legit month to release movies, but I mean, just, just to put it into perspective, like the week before you had high school musical three and saw five, um, high school musical made 47 million saw five made 36 million. It's like, okay, that's, that's a reasonable time to release those movies then the week after this is really telling on november 7th you had well, madagascar 2 which made 82 million okay you yeah and role models yes which made 26 million the week before you've got zach and mary which made 14 million I mean, I've seen role models, and I've seen Zack and Miri, and there's no way in hell that role models is a better movie than Zack and Miri. Why wouldn't you put Zack and Miri in that spot? I mean, I, 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 I get it. Role models was released by a much larger studio and everything, but mm -hmm. you're telling me they couldn't, with Seth Rogen, they couldn't get role models to budge? I mean, I don't know. I think... Role models, even like, you know, Paul Rudd arguably is a bigger star even at that point than, like, I would say, um, you know, like, maybe, you know, at least a more proven star, I guess. But also, like, that's, like, that'll cannibalize the audience. I would argue if that came out the same weekend as Role Models, neither one of those movies would fare out that well either. No, what I'm saying is, like, if you put Zack and Miri in that spot, if, like, let's say, role, I mean, because people do this all the time, right? Right. You got Role Models there. Zach and Mary's like, we're going to release on November Smith, uh, November 7th. Role models will move, right? Like, like, the point is, like, that November 7th date would be a much better day. I completely agree. Like, there's, there's no yeah. question that, like, October 31st, no matter even what the movie, regardless of a comedy or anything, like you mentioned, no one's seeing a fucking movie. Like, I'm only seeing that movie because, you know, I'm like a diehard Kevin Smith fan. But I, even then, I saw it November 1st. I wasn't bothering on actual Halloween day to fucking see it. And I think that's, like, a big reason why, like, in terms of the history, another big thing we should mention is you meant you kind of referenced the Zack and Miri-related episode of Smodcast. Because it's, like, episode 68. Like, <clears throat> the episode before that, 67, everything's all smiles. Like, we're about to release this movie. We're about to have a lot of fun with it. There's, like, a month gap. And then 68 comes out. And I re-listened to this episode. And it's so fascinating, once again, as a time capsule 
of just, like I said, at a time when we had these expectations for, like, what a comedy movie would open at, an R-rated comedy would open at in 2008, of just, like, what, what everything was there. Like, Smith and Scott Mosier are so heartbroken. It is yeah. such a bummer to hear them just, like, how did this happen? Just, like, really fall apart. Yeah, and, and you know, the other thing that happened, I mean, like, going back to that to that screening that I saw at the festival, like... Smith was, I mean, he's obviously like an amazing public speaker and everything. And he was just like so masterful. I mean, this is just a tiny, tiny thing, but it just kind of like speaks to how like skilled he is at this and and how, how much of a pro he is at this and everything. But like he was walking around answering questions for a long time and then he's answering a question and he didn't say like it's the last question or anything, but he must have gotten like a signal and he's answering it and walking around and kind of like slowly walking around the auditorium. And then he starts like walking towards the exit, like not didn't make it look like he was leaving or whatever, but as he sort of like ended the story, he timed it perfectly so that like he was basically at the exit door as he ended his story. And he's like, thanks for coming. We'll see you guys later because everybody else was going out the same exit and he knew that he needed to beat them out. Right. Like that sort of thing. And just like the skill and timing and everything for him to be like, I even know when to leave, when and how to leave, you know? And it's just like, wow, there he goes. Look at that. I hope he makes a, you know, a billion dollars with this movie. And then you come back and you listen to that Smodcast and it's just like everything was at like a lower gear. And I think the thing that he said is like he started smoking a bunch of weed, right? Yep. <laughs> and there is like a clear demarcation in his career well, with a lot of stuff, but 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 especially with like his his public speaking, where it's become like a different thing now. I'm not saying it's a better or worse thing or whatever, but there is a, a definite like shift in tone. It's a real and line in the sand Zach, kind of thing, like a real yeah. real big point. And and it's because of Zach and Mary. I mean, that was why. I mean, he was very open about the fact that that's like he started doing that. I think because he was depressed and. Then he's like, oh, this is really good. Even when I'm not depressed, this is the way to go or whatever. Right. And he just, you know, is now is very famously a, a huge stoner. Um, it's just a weird little interesting thing. And, and the thing which, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's degrees and everything. But, like, you look at the overall box office for all his movies. Like, up until this point, Zack and Miri was his most successful movie. Right it just underperformed what, you know, based on what they thought it was going to do. Yeah. They, they talk about, I think in the episode after that, which is like, it became our highest grossing movie by a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it counts, right? You know? Right. right. Yeah. But yeah, and but, it's also like the, the two other big things are, this is the, the last movie that's released obviously with the Weinsteins involved, probably yeah. because of a lot of this release stuff. He was just like, I'm cutting ties, you know, which, in retrospect, not the main reason you should have cut ties, but, you know, at some point, you should. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But more, I think more importantly, and I didn't realize this until, like, today while I was thinking about it, it's the last one with Scott Mosier as a producer. That's true. Yeah, because he was, he was going to do Red State, and then he didn't. And, and it, it's, it's felt, 
you can't fault Mosier for leaving, right? I mean, he wanted to be a filmmaker and, you know, himself and everything and not just, you know, someone else's producer. And he went off to make his own movies. And then his first movie made, like, more money than all, all okay. of Kevin's Okay, but you're burying the lead on what that is because this is the most fascinating thing to me. It's like, I figured, like, okay, Scott Mosier's leaving. Like, he, like, did some weird, like, producing and editing. Like, I know he edited uh, Who's Your Caddy? Which yeah, is one of the weird, yeah. just <laughs> interesting bits. But the fact that he goes over to Illumination Animation and his first directorial thing, he's a co-director on the Grinch movie with Bendit Cumberbatch doing the voice. Yeah. It's still, like, the weirdest fucking thing to me. When I first heard that was a thing, I was like, is this, like, some weird Wikipedia edit just for me? Because this feels yeah. like a Smodcast joke. Just, like, uh, he's fucking directing the Grinch. It's so weird. <laughs> like, when they announced that, I was just like, holy shit that's amazing you know and it's a good movie i mean it's it's not the worst cringe movie i'll give it that <laughs> not by a long shot no, no I, I think they i think they did a good job with you i mean when they released that first poster with like the little kid grinch and they're like don't worry he'll get meaner or whatever i mean that's like the cutest you know little you know but at the same time i feel bad because you're looking at this poster of this really cute grinch and you're like he's gonna get picked on a lot I don't. I don't know that I want to see that. To be honest, you know, <laughs> the ennui you feel at the Grinch poster is fascinating. Still a great poster, but yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, that that was big. The Weinstein thing uh, was was big in retrospect too. Um, but uh, but yeah, and 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 the uh, <laughs> the weed thing was big. You know, which you know he's. He's talked about, I, I mean, it's, I mean, I guess we'll talk about this more in the next episode, like how it, it changed uh, his directorial style and everything like that. But um, it made him more Altman-esque in a lot of ways, which I guess makes sense because Altman was also a huge stoner, right? So that tracks. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. Um, but what do, what do you think about uh, the movie itself, uh, Zach and Mary? Well, yeah, coming back to it, um, unfortunate wording, I realize now in retrospect. Um, but <laughs> but um, going back to Zach and Mary, it's fascinating because, um, like I said, this is one that I kind of like tossed off to the side or whatever when I first saw it. Yeah. And every time I revisited like some of the Kevin Smith movies, a lot of them go down for me. A lot of them aren't nearly as fun for me, aside from like, the you know the initial sort of grouping a lot of people say like the 90s era movies and stuff like that but um zach and mary only increases with me every time i revisit it um i feel like the thing is you mentioned like the apatow like why is everyone flocking to apatow versus this i think it's really because like apatow and some people like some of his former collaborators have said this apatow had a bit more of like a meaner spiteful thing with his characters there's still a lot of that like charm that's there especially like his movies usually start very mean and then get to be like a sweeter place in a way that, like, I don't think Smith's movies mostly are, as opposed to Smith, is consistently kind of sweet throughout. Like, even in this movie, as vulgar as it is from the beginning, there's a bit more of, like, a sweetness, a bit more of, like, a charm to it that doesn't feel as overt, like, in, as acidic as it is in the Apatow movies. And I think that's what has made this one age a lot better than a lot of the Apatow movies, honestly, is that it feels like it's a very sweet story about sex and about like people who try to you know make their some kind of money through putting on a show in this case a porno but also about how like sex is like from different perspectives either something that like, can be kind of fun and light and can be something like you do for a living versus something that's very key and important even if you try and pretend it isn't 
And I think it's it's a really that's why I think it's probably his most underrated movie. I would say. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you that it does get better with each viewing. You know, I liked it a whole lot when I when I first saw it, um, but it, it has uh, certainly uh, increased in my uh, in my uh, opinion uh, over time. And I think a lot of it has to do with with what you're saying, but uh, I think a lot of it is also sort of like the autobiographical nature of this movie, which mm-hmm. I mean, you see in in a lot of his movies. Uh, you know, he's pretty open that, you know, the Clerks movies are, you know, kind of like his evolution as a person or whatever. And, you know, it was weird. Like this time, like I always kind of, as I mentioned in the last episode, I always lumped Clerks 2 and Zack and Mary together for some reason. Like there's a lot of similarities, like kind of behind the scenes with them, I guess. And it just seemed like they were a pair. But watching them now i mean i think they're definitely not but the one thing which uh, does stick out is that watching clerks 2 this time i was kind of like i don't see how this is his life in the way that clerks was it's you know as 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 marcelo said on the last episode it's the life that he thinks he would have had if he didn't become a filmmaker right but Zach and Miri, I think, really is just about the making of Clerks, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, the the uh, making the movie in your in your uh, workplace sort of thing, but even like down to like first you try to make Star Wars and then you realize that that's beyond your capabilities and then you realize that you can do that with you know what you have at your disposal and you know your your life and everything and and i i think that that works extremely well and it's also one of the things where when i first heard the plot of clerks 3 i'm like why he he made that movie that was one of something i wanted to really bring up it's just the fact that when i saw clerks the clerks three trailer and i realized oh they're doing the thing that he'd originally wanted to do for the animated movie that never happened and then oh was that was that the original plot he, of the anime he movie? said for years that the animated movie was going to be like oh they shoot a movie in the quick stop oh okay like for years he yeah. tried to do that and i guess he spun into being clerks three but even then watching zach and Mir, it's like you already made this movie and it's really good. I don't know why you have to do that again, but it's like, oh, but it's Dante and Randall, so it's even more of like, there, there's even less of like a, a line than we had previously. Yeah. Like we were tearing down one of the thin walls for that, <laughs> which I'm okay with. But yeah, and I've, obviously I'm I'm really looking forward to Clerks three. But yeah, he he already sort of hit it out of the park with Zach and Mary. So what's the point? Okay, so what did you think about, I mean, not, you know, after all the whole, like, God, Seth Rogen, blah, 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 what did you think about Seth Rogen and Elizabeth Banks in this movie? Well, the thing is, like, you know, obviously, Seth Rogen became kind of like, at the same time that, you know, I was such a big Kevin Smith fan, I was also in the crowd of people who were like, oh, my God, like, the, the rise of Apatow was also big for me when I was younger, just like, oh, my God, this feels like our generation's kind of like, you know, the way people talk about Bill Murray and everybody else rising up in, like, the 80s or whatever, this feels like what it is for us, I guess. Um, you know, not, not nearly quite as good movies in retrospect when you revisit some of those Apatow movies. But um, at the same time, like, I, I think Seth Rogen is such a gifted comedic actor 
that I think it, it's so interesting watching this movie where like he wrote it very much for Rogan and you can see some of his like obvious like improvisational skills but at the same time it feels like he fits perfectly within being like a Kevin Smith protagonist um, where there is kind of like that naivete but at the same time that genuine care and I think a lot of it comes from like the chemistry between him and Banks. Banks and Rogan I think both feel like such a great couple because they both have a similar insecurity despite the fact that you know Banks, one would argue, is like more traditionally attractive necessarily than Rogan is. But at the same time, they both have a great insecurity that makes them feel like, oh, I could see why these two have been friends for so long. I can see why they've been like kind of living with each other, trying to survive and scrounge with each other because they feel like they're kind of like survival buddies. And how they've had these feelings that they just never talked about and they kind of like poke fun at each other about, but then they really think about it for a second. Like all of that sincerity, it makes it feel like weirdly kind of like romantic despite the fact this is like a movie with a bunch of like dick and ball and poop jokes and shit like that. This romance I feel between like Zach and Miri is very genuine all the way down to like, I think the sex scene that they have is maybe the best sequence Smith has ever directed just in terms of actual like craft to it. You feel the intimacy, you feel the sincerity, like both the actors are so good at doing that particular bit. But at the same time, when you cut over, it's very typical Smith, like funny of just people reacting awkwardly to a very intimate, beautiful moment <laughs> right in front of them. It's like, it, I, I just feel like the, the, that couple is what really makes this movie work nearly as well as it does. Those two actors are so phenomenal at making this Dick and Fart joke movie have a true, genuine, big, heart yeah you know i mean dawson would have been great you know i i I have no i have no doubt about that but it feels like they kind of lucked out by getting banks because the because of the fact that rogan and banks had you know a a history right i mean they had worked together before and everything they knew each other and and all that stuff and and that i think helped with the on-screen relationship that that you see i mean i maybe 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 not maybe they're they're just really good actors or whatever but you know i mean a little I, column I, a little I, column b you know a bit of both <laughs> i think helps. yeah yeah but but i i think that they they do have really good chemistry and 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 i think it it works really well um it, it is interesting like you when you're listening to the dialogue in the movie it is very Kevin Smith <laughs> and there's a lot of you know like you know it's Rogan being sort of like the Kevin Smith proxy in this movie you hear him say a lot of the things that Kevin Smith says on a regular basis on his podcasts or whatever and it's really <laughs> sort of interesting to to see how Rogan who probably doesn't listen to every single Kevin Smith podcast like reads that dialogue on the page and interprets it in his own way and says like the same stuff but the way that Seth Rogen would say it you know right yeah particularly it's like during strange. like the, particularly during like the scenes with Justin Long and Brandon Routh you see uh-huh. a lot of like that kind of like Kevin Smith being very playful and fun with like another person he finds interesting. And then even when it gets down to like him being self-loathing, like after everything's ruined with the Star Wars parody, it's just like, I'm just gonna be sitting here making fucking cappuccinos for fucks like this. All that it feels very much of a piece with yeah, like that's sort of that mixture of like playful fun, but also like bitter, like worry and anguish and like self-loathing that Smith has experienced at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's the type of thing where, like, under normal circumstances, you'd never really like notice or or whatever. whatever. But you know, the, the I think, in, in a sense, like having heard 
Smith talk for hours and hours and hours, you can kind of like sit down and read that script and know what the voice in his head sounded like. And it didn't really sound like the way that Rogan delivers it, but it's just, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting, uh, take on on the material that that i think works really well you know blending rogan and 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 smith's you know sensibilities together in into one movie i think it's 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 very well um very well realized and you know with with banks i think you know i mean one of the things that they've talked about is how banks really kind of pushed smith to uh have a have you know like a better realization of that character right like she was getting the short end of the stick in in the way that i think a lot of uh female characters in in kevin smith's movies do and you know banks of course being a excellent writer and director in her own right Mm -hmm. had that that sort of uh i don't know she was she was able to bring bring that to the table and and I think probably make the character much better than it was initially on the page. Right, I completely agree with that because like Elizabeth Banks like does such a great job in this movie of having an equal amount of like that kind of self-loathing that self-loathing and regret about her like life at that particular point so where she feels like an equal with Rogan the whole time. Like even when she goes up to Brandon Routh, just like, Oh, don't, you know, just, uh, don't, um, don't leave me, just fuck me or whatever, like that bit. Or even as it, it keeps going. And like the fact that it really culminates beautifully to even the lead up before they actually have sex, like the awkwardness of their porn acting and how mm-hmm. it feels very similar. It's just like, Oh yeah. Put your cream down. Oh yeah. I spilled my cream everywhere. And then they awkwardly interrupt. Just like, Oh no, don't take off your, I don't want to see your bosom. You don't want you to see your bosoms. It's like, no, I guess we can do it. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> like, they talk to each other there's like great like awkwardness that feels very sincere and makes you believe in the romance that eventually happens in a way that i think other kevin smith movies have somewhat failed to do as well yeah yeah and 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 getting back to your to your other point about uh the direction and everything and and smith's filmmaking in the movie i do agree that this is i mean not just that one scene but the entire movie feels like it's the best direction that smith has ever done in his career at least up until this point mm-hmm. I, I, that scene is great the scene in the uh apartment where uh rogan is you know may or may not you know i don't know if you want to say cheat on on uh you know elizabeth banks's character or whatever you know like that whole thing which is done in like silence you know with just the the, the music and this this like very very slight slow motion and these tracking shots which are not characteristic of of kevin smith movies at all i mean mm-hmm. there's just like this maturity in the filmmaking there which um we hadn't really seen up until this point not to mention i mean the editing is fantastic and also just uh the use of music is so good in this yeah particularly the hold me up the live song is like maybe the best needle drop he's put in one of his movies during that sexy i think it's like the perfect song to fit there yeah yeah i mean you know even going back to i mean like all the stuff in the intro with like the uh the um uh, you know reunion and everything like that and all the thanksgiving stuff i mean it's just spot on 
perfect. It's it's amazing. It's like you know, it, there's always been this stigma in Kevin Smith's movies, you know, in terms of like the visuals and everything. I mean, all of that goes away here. I mean, he is like a master filmmaker. I mean, maybe that's that's saying you know, giving him too much credit. I don't think so. He's like a master comedic filmmaker in this movie. He's definitely a much better f- comedic filmmaker than he's ever been prior, <laughs> and I would say since, quite frankly. Like, I think there's... Com- you, he never quite gets to back to this level in his directorial com- work. Comedic, I would agree. Although I, I, I do personally feel that the work that he does in Red State is some some next-level stuff. I don't know. That's just me personally. It's you ambitious. Know, people, I give him a lot of credit for that. It's very ambitious. <laughs> but, yeah... Um, okay, so uh, any any other thoughts on, on the movie? Well, I mean, there's like a great supporting cast here as well we haven't really mentioned a lot of. Like, I mean, Craig Robinson, always very dependable, always very funny. Um, uh, the Probably my favorite non-J role for Jason Mewes here would just yeah. like have like the ability to like get to get the boner immediately is like one of his funnier gags with the dutch rudder thing very mm-hmm. funny even like some porn actors who pop up like tracy lords and katie morgan i think are also very fun supporting players like tracy lords has this great like deadpan delivery and katie morgan i love like how genuine and sweet she is throughout all but like especially after the big sex scene where she talks yeah. about like i thought it was pretty and stuff like that mm-hmm. she's very endearing and cute and uh, you know jeff anderson's fun justin long who we've referenced but is like a standout scene scene yeah. performance in this movie. Yeah, him and Brandon Routh together are uh, are pretty great. You know, Brandon Routh is a great um, uh, foil to uh, to Justin Long in, in a lot of ways. I think, uh, yeah, the, the idea of putting the two of them together is perfect. Like even just on a visual comedic level, like one is so much taller than the other. <laughs> it's so funny yeah. to see them standing together and how much more like forceful Justin Long is by comparison to Brandon Routh is much more meek and shy. It's so mm-hmm. funny a dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is just my my personal taste or whatever, but the idea of setting it at Thanksgiving, you know, Black Friday, all that stuff. I just love that just because I love like christmas movies and stuff like holiday movies i i think that there's you know just like something really to making that choice you know whether whether you do it in something like uh, a christmas story or something like iron man 3 you know just the idea that you're saying like i am going to set this movie at christmas says something and i think there is a a a story reason for doing it here but it works so well with you know the the bitter cold and all this stuff it's it's perfect yeah i agree i think it does a pretty good job of especially displaying like you mentioned the story reason like being together on thanksgiving without like an actual family because they established that their parents have died and stuff like that so they don't have really any family to go to and they couldn't really afford to go anywhere if they wanted to because they're so broke and that kind of found family you get from like you know kevin smith talks a lot about like the oh the little rascals putting on a show thing this mm-hmm. is one of the better examples of doing that where just like i love the found family that kind of becomes this film crew after a certain point like when they do the rap party a few days early it's like a really like surprisingly heartwarming moment when they, they all come in just like the uh, as producer, I'm shutting production down for a day so we can get crazy and stuff like that. And then when they dance together, it's all very weirdly like sweet. Once again, for the movie called Zack and Mary Make a Porno, it's a very like heartfelt 
like relationship that builds not just between Zack and Miri, but the whole film crew. I really feel this gang of misfits coming together. Yeah, and another like great montage set to that DMX song and everything. Yes. I mean, it's very very well done. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I like every time I watch it, I'm like, I want to watch it again. You know. <laughs> it just has that that effect on me. Um, um, you know, also just a brief shout out: Tom Savini shows up in yeah. all like Dawn of the Dead connections. Like the mall is the Dawn of the Dead mall, uh-huh. and the Monroeville Zombies and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know Tom Savini, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, and any other uh, thoughts on Zach and Mary? Yeah, I, I kind of talked about this earlier with um, sort of like this era being, I guess, beginning of the end is a bit too strong word, like you said, but I guess it's like the plateau point, I would say. Like 2008 to around 2012 is around like peak, like, oh, R-rated comedy, it's not going to really stop. And then it really dwindles after like streaming becomes so successful. And I think it's a shame that like Kevin Smith didn't get a chance, like you mentioned, the timing was so awkward, to be able to like do not necessarily just like, oh, studio comedies like cop out where he's just directing from someone else's script but make something that's kind of mainstream while still having his sensibilities to it like a zach and mary i think he could have had like a fruitful career at that if he had started maybe just a couple years earlier with it and i think we could have seen something that would have been you know an interesting evolution for his career that could have led him into all sorts of different places as opposed to a bit more repetitive which i would say is the case post red state yeah, yeah. I mean, from from the from the the comedy perspective, which you know, I mean, it's it's interesting to think that Smith's career after this is not just comedy, right? I mean, he has done other things, you know, dipping into horror and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I, I do agree that this is sort of like the in in some ways the apex of that, and it does show that if you know maybe he had been with a different studio, if maybe. Uh, you know, some stuff had been handled differently. He could have had a very successful career making studio comedies, you know, R-rated studio comedies. And and uh, I would have loved to have seen what those were. Uh, but I think what happened next or what happens next leads to some movies which... I would have never in a million years expected from him, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the alternate reality where, you know, Zack and Miri is released on a on a good weekend and becomes a hit. Like, what does Kevin Smith's career look like after that? I think it looks like a lot more Zack and Miri's, which completely into, but probably not too many tusks. And right. I, some people might might be like, yeah, that would be cool. That's the, uh, you know, the... I mean, on a base level, no, you be, that is a true fact. It would, there would not be tusks. How you take that news varies depending on the person. I, I, I personally, like... I mean, we've got Zach and Mary. We had, you know, 14 years of this Kevin Smith in a lot of ways. And, um, and while, you know, the, some of the stuff falls flat after this... Um, I think that Red State and Tusk in particular are so weird and so unique that uh, it's worth it. 
No, I mean, I the thing is, like, I've obviously been dogging. Like, I'm not as huge on a lot of the movies that come after this point. But at the yeah. same time, I do agree there are very distinctly Kevin Smith. Because at the same time that I'm saying, like, oh, this, the mainstream studio comedy thing could happen. Like, when we got Cop Out right after, which is more of, like, I think, unfortunately, what would have happened is a lot more sort of, like, Cop Out-esque ventures that wouldn't have appeased anybody. Because um, I remember he was saying, like, around that time he had gotten offered the Arthur remake that Russell Brand oh, yeah. did. <laughs> Which would have been like no one would have been happy with that either. No one, no yeah. one wins in that scenario. <laughs> no. So it, it, I don't like it's not all sunshine and roses with the alternate path either. That's true. That's true. All right. Any other any other thoughts on Zach and Mary? Um. Yeah. I think this. You know, with, in terms of the Apatow of it all, I would say this one holds up a lot better than many other Apatow things. And as much as I'm decrying some of Smith's later like ventures, I'd argue Apatow. Aside from, like, the documentaries he's done recently, like George Carlin and um, the uh, Gary Shandling one, um, a lot of his career, like, after, around this point, is, like, um, Funny People, which I think is underrated. But then you yeah. go down the path of, like, you know, this is 40, and eventually it's to the bubble, which is many issues I have with any Kevin Smith movie. At least it's not as fucking self-indulgent <laughs> as the bubble. <laughs> I haven't seen the bubble yet. I saw, I've seen everything up through King of Staten Island. I haven't seen the bubble but I'll get to it. All right. Well, Thomas, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, as you mentioned, I host Double Edge Double Bill, uh, which I do with my co-host Adam Thomas, where every week we pick um, a random double feature uh, to do based around some kind of general topic. Um, and we cover that double feature um, in the episode that follows. Uh, so, for example, around this time, uh, we would have had episodes about um, the... Um, we would have had episodes about uh, Martin Short that would have come out recently where we covered Inner Space and Clifford, uh, just as an example. Um, and we also did um, an urban fantasy episode where we covered Ponyo, the Hayao Miyazaki movie, alongside Skeleton Man, a sci-fi channel original movie starring Michael yeah. Rooker and several other hey. people. So that's how weird the double features can get. Um, and uh, we are part of a talk film society. Uh, along with uh, this very podcast, so it'll be in the same feed. Uh, but you can follow us at DEDB Pod on the socials out there. And uh, we also have a Patreon, where for $1 uh, a month you get to vote in polls to be able to pick certain movies and topics we cover and listen to bonus audio podcasts, like uh, where we cover recent streaming hits like Prey, for example. We just mm-hmm. did an episode mm-hmm. on this one over there. It's a good movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really cool. Um, and you said you're going to be at Dragon Con as well? Yes, I will be at DragonCon uh, right after this episode posts. I will be doing panels as part of both the horror track and the uh, urban fantasy track over there all Labor Day weekend in uh, downtown Atlanta. Uh, I'll be doing panels about the show Severance, uh, about The Thing, in honor of its 40th anniversary, uh, Halloween 3, several other different things. Um, so if you have your DragonCon app, you can find me, Thomas Mariani, on there you'll be able to you know add those panels to your schedule. Nice, nice. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on uh, my website, filmdamagepod.com, doing a show called Film Damage, where we talk about film projection, Star Trek, and time travel. And uh, you can find me right here on Talk Film Society doing this very show uh, next week. Well, next I keep on saying next week, but we do two of these a week. So in <laughs> just a few days, you'll be able to find our episode on the next uh, installment of Kevin Smith's career. 
Cop out. Another turning point. It's all turning points from here. It's just like he just keeps on turning, you know? These doors um, keep sliding. <laughs> yes so uh so yeah come back in a few days uh for that um but thank you very much for for joining me thomas i really appreciate it and i appreciate you having me on the show thank you no yeah it was great it was great and until next time if you plan to podcast let us know